Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. When I'm at work and I call my bluff and I just want to get out 
I'm tight and right. I just might prepare for the drought. Let me go on. Every day I'm out on the slot. Let me go on. 101 my time jobs. All right. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, the podcast where I speak to artists about how they've been able to survive, really. On today's episode is a great guest, the very likable Baxter Jury, about to release his eighth album. He's got records that are suave and sordid, charming and hooky. And this new one, I Thought I Was Better Than You, coming out on the 2nd of June on Heavenly Recordings. Sounds like it might be some of his best. Cheers to Jamie at Rough Trade for sorting this out. Thanks to you for listening. I'm excited to get into this one. 2000 Trees supports the podcast. They're an independent festival in Cheltenham, just a few hours away from London. And this year, they've got a stacked lineup as ever. Soft Play, formerly known as Slaves, Bullet for My Valentine and Frank Hart and the Rattlesnakes are all headlining. 100 Reasons, American Football, Black Honey, The Bronx... Chubby and the Gang, The Chisel, High Viz, and loads of other amazing bands at Trees this year. If you'd like to go, but you haven't got your tickets, head to 2000trees.co.uk and use the voucher code 101POD to get 20 quid straight off. All right, short intro today, because I think this is one just to get into, really. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. This is Baxter Jury. I came up with that, this sort of idea for this podcast or I don't know what I thought at the time. I thought it might be a book of interviews or whatever, but it's turned out to be a podcast. And so it's about two things, really, I think, this conversation. It's like how people have been able to survive and grow, basically, you know, as an individual when you're prioritizing yeah. your art, whether that's filmmaking, music, writing. And then the other half of it is sort of just the general forays into precarious work during that whole time yeah well it's very relevant all of it really i mean there's a sort of common myth i just did an interview last night from argentina i don't know how they know anything about me but he the guy was they're quite aggressive the argentinians and he was like why you bother working you are rich and i'm like i'm not rich and he went you have a massively famous vibe and you're rich and it's too much hard work and you're very old or something and i was like jesus christ it was the most and then at the end i went i don't really like this question you went but i love you and whatever it was a bit of a confusing guy but i was just thinking that that was one thing i mean you know our my world was quite chaotic and there was never much around there was never any money or kind of surplus thing so we were we had to go and scrape about to go and work straight away and the, the more like the, the beginning when i was young and i wasn't really at school i had to go and get a job from the age of i moved out of home when i was 16 so i had to get a job i had an argument with everybody in quite a ferocious way and i had to go and work and i and in those days you could find loads there were loads of job columns in the evening standard in like 1987 or 89 I was I just turned 16 and I was sort of almost homeless and I got a job in a place called AMPM which was a watch shop the first shop built on the facade of the they just built this thing place called the plaza on Oxford Street which is like a like a shopping center it was the first shopping center of its kind modeled on an American version it's still there which part of Oxford Street is that is that the one where Primark is is that towards you know like the top end 
but it would be i don't you know i can't quite explain where it. it's still there but then it was a high glistening modernity right. you know and but the, on the facade the front shop was a place called AMPM, and they had three shops and they were selling because there was a massive boom in just you kind of like not disposable watches, but kind of watch like swatches and all this stuff, all the and these changeable intercolored things that were you could all swap around, and they were pretty expensive. And all these, and this there was a sort of business model built around then. And I answered a an advert and the standard because I was desperate. I was so desperate because I was living on someone's floor, and um and I got the job. And you had to go into a sort of like like a kind of period where you had to go and learn the product for two weeks and sit in some factory somewhere in Kensington, weirdly enough, and then learn about all the product. And all these kind of business mantra-type meetings came with some German guy and told you about the watch. And then I was sent up to this place, AMPM, on on Oxford Street, in the plaza, and I had a, a kind of ball. I was like, this is cool. And there was an amazing manager there, big Asian guy, I can't, I won't say his name, I can't quite remember his name, because we got up to all sorts of antics, and we had such a brilliant time, and we used to smoke a lot of cigarettes and things in the storeroom, and, you know, hang out, and it was a bit of clanism, like it was a bit mafia, this guy, and he had his favourites, and there were some worker types, and then there was us, and I was about third (laughs) tier, sort of recognised as someone that could get away with stuff. Yeah. But I wasn't really in the high, you know, there was someone above me. Was there safety in that? I mean, that's something I think a lot about in the jobs that I've had is that, you know, for a few months at a time, I really sort of buy into this this idea that, yes, I am the cashier at that supermarket. Yes, I am the editor at Times Radio. I kind of buy into these ideas of, of self-worth, self-identity, and then it drops off at some point. <laughs> I don't know how, I mean, what we were even paying. Anyway, it was quite a good job until one day we came in and we were smoking something in the storeroom and I'd spilt a bottle of um, white spirits on the floor about 20 minutes before and I kind of loosely mopped it up and I'd thrown this, it was a joint, and we'd smoked this bit about 8 o'clock in the morning and I threw this bit and this sort of mushroom explosion, beautiful thing for me. Like, however, it, it, it sort of reacted with the chemical carpet and the white spirits and the spliff or whatever. This thing went, and almost like singed our eyebrows off, but not quite. And so it went, well, it came that high. It, it like reached. Yeah, this, I don't know what, Fuck it I don't know what was in the bottle or whatever. I can't, you know, this is also a long memory. <laughs> And then I remember us just being stunned and then thinking, wow, that was quite a scene. And there was like a moment of stillness. And then this like water system that they just built the plaza. They just built it six months ago. The thing went off in the, in the storeroom and then about 12 went off in the shop. And then it went off in the, um, in the main concourse or whatever you call it, where the main, because we we're on the ground floor. And then everybody in every shop Went, gong, 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 gong. <laughs> and then and then upstairs like within within like less than 11 minutes there were like a river of not just water but like all the stock of every <laughs> shop had converged into this sort of this rapid and it was absolutely insane i'm thinking shit 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 what am i gonna do and then one of the other guys we started trying to clear up and shove all this stuff into it onto all these shelves, but he started nicking the watches 
and putting him in his jacket. So I thought, I'll nick the watches as well, because I don't know, I'm going to get fired anyway. So I took a load upstairs and stashed them in a toilet in the chaos. The manager guy that had allowed all this sort of behavior to happen sort of almost had a kind of breakdown and sort of knelt into the water almost biblically and sort of had a meltdown the managers turned up you know it was more you couldn't see it was so it was actually pretty grave because all the other store owners and all their stores and all the destruction was quite insane but i went upstairs stashed my my lot came down and then started sweeping up and stayed till two o'clock in the morning helping the fire brigade darren oh i shouldn't mention his name but i won't say his surname because he nicked his watches and legged it, and the police chased him, nicked him, and I got promoted to the Carnaby Street branch. And then I became the assistant manager. Fucking hell, that is a great story. <laughs> wow. Also, that's a good lesson in knowing when to sort of play the good boy, learning when to play the good person. The fact that you stayed around, that saved you, obviously. Yeah, I don't know if that's a very moral thing. You steal a little, they'll put you in jail. You steal a lot, they'll make you a king. You've got to get away with what you can, though, don't you? Yeah, I think, it was, <laughs> anyway, the manager had a meltdown. Darren got arrested and I got promoted. <laughs> but, I mean, it was sort of also a lesson in that he'd created the environment. A kind of bad culture had manifested, and I thought it was survival of the fittest. Did you, being around that area, I mean, was Soho pretty pretty fun place to hang out around then? Down in Carnaby Street afterwards? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of grotty, really. The 80s are kind of grotty. It was a bit tough, you know what I mean? It was like a lot of film companies and things like that, a lot of grottiness, sort of grotty blokes that traded an unsavory world of something. So it probably wasn't as nice as you think. It probably got nicer in the 90s, really, or might have been good in the 70s. I think it was pretty grotty then. It was sort of fun, but there wasn't any, like, kind of nice places to go. Can you draw like a comparison to like now you then, and if you were the same age, same sort of period of your life, then now, do you think it'd be a lot harder to survive and, you know, have fun and, you know, do you think it's a lot harder to live today as a young person? You've got a son, obviously. Well, there's a health and safety issue, whereas we were released very early and there was the kind of, there was a sort of escape clause when you were young in those days it was a different generational thing and there's a sort of good and bad thing about that and i had quite a chaotic home so to get out was a sort of healthy thing and to learn some survival tactics i mean it wasn't there wasn't anything grave going on at home it was just mm. chaos you know it was pretty unsettled so for me to learn how to sort of survive on my own was quite a good thing and 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 it served me ever since i never developed into a functioning normal gas bill paying human but i learned to survive in a different way you know i'm pretty feral still because i never quite configured into a normal human yeah. being if you know what i mean but i think these days you wouldn't allow your kids to go through what i was subjected to but what i was subjected to kind of helped and it was also very anecdotal what you say there about like configuring into that sort of gas paying you know kind of citizen i wonder if that's something that artists like kind of across the board deal with because because I guess you know if you're prioritizing your art and you're having to work on the side and do that sort of gas paying side of things in a way I feel like from my experience in a way you kind of have to ignore that gas paying side of person and just kind of follow your your vision do you see what I'm saying do you think there's some truth in that 
I think there's a bit of selfishness in yourself and towards others. You know, you sort of kind of have to be prepared to be bailed out one way or another, I guess. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I really got into music. I sort of accepted I'd do it much later on. And I probably was a bit nepo by then because I remember getting a publishing deal when I was about in my mid twenties and it, and it probably wasn't, uh, it wasn't right that I got it. If you know what I mean? I was thinking I didn't really justify it. I don't think, but I used it to sort of learn to become what I became, but it was a manipulation of my situation. But I guess the only way I justify that is that we all do that in one way or another. I often think that like my mum bought me a bass guitar when I was 15 and that was very nice of her. And I could only do that. It's because she, yeah. offered you know and like and i have lots of friends who yeah, yeah, whose yeah. parents wouldn't have done that for them you do have to use what you can get really yeah yeah totally i mean from that point on i sort of tried to never ever really have a job i i, I did a few the only things i can think of nearest to having a job since i was young were like I, you know i got offered a few producing jobs once where they're like adult producing jobs where from sony records and that kind of was similar thing it just broke me i wasn't prepared i wasn't that i didn't have that mentality for it i produced a, this band called the metros once who were the precursor to the yeah. fat white family and i know them all and that when they were 17 and they were so fucking chaotic it was through james endicott and he'd hired me and i knew james and it was you know he could be took a punt on something and they, it was the last crumbling moments of the big old archetypal record company behavior and they gave me loads of unjustifiable money and we went to rockfield for six weeks with you know them a bunch of fucking peckham herberts and me trying to be slightly moral probably too moral for my own good what do you mean moral oh, i just didn't want kids off their heads you know what i mean i was a bit like kids shouldn't be off their heads i sort of that's the backlash to the way I've been brought up is I'm a bit like, I don't want to see kids right. off their heads. Yeah. I'm sort of a bit like, mm, I'm not really into that, but I don't think it's my job to interfere with it when people were on that. So what were the kind of feelings you were having at that time? Was it like, okay, yeah, I might be a producer. This is my, this is my place in the world. How are you feeling? Yeah. I mean, I was liking the idea that I was getting paid. I was doing two jobs. I had also another one in France from this big singer called Alistair and they paid me a shitload of money. So I was making loads of money, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I had no idea. I didn't know how to switch on the studio lights. I don't know what a thing is. I never care about what an EQ does. I don't, just don't, just don't care. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I was sort of vaguely interested in a snare sound, but what relevance does that have to the metros? You know what I mean? Right. It was just re irrelevant. And I think, I was hired yet again, nepotistically, because they were into sort of dad's music, probably, or something like that. And it was just a bit of a... And you learn these things, and it, but it was a very painful lesson. I think I beat them all up once early in the morning. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. They probably contest that fact. But we are our kind of mates. I mean, have you learned since then? But I mean, just from, I listened to Rick Rubin's podcast a couple of times and I know he must know how to do a fucking EQ because he did all the Beastie Boys stuff and, and everything. But he talks quite at glee now how he's like, I don't even fucking touch the gear. I just walk in. I, my presence is being a producer. Yeah, I wonder if that sort of proxy, you know, he's got 12 people operating simultaneously is mm -hmm. a bit arrogant. I mean, he's obviously brilliant and maybe, but I don't know if he's still brilliant. You know, I mean, maybe he just gets the pick of 
the good people that are just brilliant anyway. So it sounds like it's brilliant. Yeah. Who knows? But I mean, all that stuff. I think anyone that's really good has to get involved. I bet Spielberg still reads everything and presses buttons and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I bet Spielberg carries stuff. What have you? Part-time jobs, 101. Part-time jobs, 101. Part-time jobs, 101. Part-time jobs. When did you start getting into like a like a routine? Can you even call it that? You know, when you started getting into a sort of flow where you're like, were there any sort of milestone or sort of points where you were like, oh yeah, this is this is good what I'm doing now. I should carry on going in this this direction. Well, I had to sort of really reverse everything, my sort of instincts of my childhood, not to blame a childhood, because I it was I was enriched with many brilliant insights, experiences, but I had to sort of reverse an instinct to be self-destructive and things like that. And I sort of am weirdly disciplined. I'll get up and I'll run about, or I have to run about to sort of exude energy, and then I'll go and do this. And I, and I find a way... Of producing results and I like working and I like kind of mental vanity so I like being quite clear-headed you know that's so I'm quite protective over like keeping sane and, and not sober but like kind of you know I like having control over what what I'm doing and I quite am I'm in creatively ambitious not financially ambitious I sort of don't give a shit but I'm creatively ambitious so I like films books music and doing things differently so i'm always looking for ways of being entertaining myself which is a which is a sort of hang up from my childhood where it was so exciting i'm always looking for that excitement and it's not bad if you can placate that i often get worried that life's going to get boring and i really feel like i have to actively physically do things and sometimes that kind of more often that that ends up sort of being like the sort of dead cat analogy where like say if you're on a holiday and it's boring you got to do something mad to make yourself entertained maybe that's a rubbish example but <laughs> i do get worried about life being boring you know i think you, you got to put yourself yeah, out there to have fun i mean you said something there about protecting your art or protecting the creative vision uh i was at a football game clapton fc a few years ago and someone next to me smoking a spliff and drinking a tisky was like so he got fouled or whatever and he's like protect the talent and it's obviously like a bit of a joke, but I was like, that sort of stayed in my mind because I think looking at people making music, making art, you do have to, it seems to me, you tell me, you have to set in things, you have to do things to protect that. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think once you get confident enough and you, and when I recognize enough in myself that I do something that's unique to myself and to other people, so at least I don't do what other people do. And it doesn't mean I always have to love it, but I know it, it's a thing and it's a thing that defines me and um, I'll make it the best it, it can be. And as long as that provides some heating and gas bills and a wave, and then I feel very content and being defined by something. And within that, then you can explore what else you can do. And you've got to protect that and you've got to be confident enough not to sort of, think that you've got to be like someone else i mean luckily i'm unique enough of a weird looking bloke sounding bloke yeah my biggest thing i've had to fight is legacy really and I, I, you can't fight that what you realize you've got to shrug it off not fight it you've got to be really proud of legacy and not fight it because you just look like you just die fighting it you know what i mean you can't fight something like that you've got to shrug it off i wonder if you try and fight something like that then you just end up 
letting that define you anyway. You just look a bit bitter. And then and you can't. Things that are brilliant are brilliant. You know, they are brilliant and you can't argue. Have you had sort of many, because it took you a while to, after that publishing deal, how many years was it before before that first record? Oh, it took me a few years to sort of, until I met Jeff Travis at, um, at Rough Trade Records and he gave me a chance. And then, um, and then I made a record then and he kind of, and that was good that because they're so unbothered about your association. They're more into just what you're doing. So it was a really good path. And I still, you know, I still haunted by the way. I still could be flaky then. If you know what I mean? I still could just sort of stop and fuck up and not. And you could make, just disappear. Yeah. And kind of live. I lived pretty poorly for a long time. And then I actually, sounds strange this, but I dated a ballet dancer who was a, a senior soloist in the Royal Ballet. And we went out with each other for about three or four years. And she taught me like what discipline is. And she just opened my mind to, you know, I, I, she did what she was doing from the age of seven. And she said, well, whatever you think you've got an idea about anything, this is a reality check of how hard it is just to be where I am. And they were, she was probably in the top hundred dancers in the world and it blew my mind, and I was just so impressed by yeah. that drive that ever since I thought that you should never neglect that. If you've got it in you, and you're a bit, I'm a bit pathological, so I'm able, you know, like I can go, if I do a marathon, I've done a marathon. You know, I'm a bit nuts, so I'll go and do it, or I'll write a yeah. book, or I'll, and she taught me how to sort of focus. She would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and roll on a pencil to get rid wow. of the some sort of stress in her thigh and then she'd go and do one, learn one ballet and perform another in the evening. And I've ne- I was just like, what? Crikey. Fuck, you know what I mean? I was just, that's what taught me. That was a big junction, actually. I grew up with a lot of skateboarders and that is something yeah. that requires, dedication doesn't even cover it, does it? And those sorts of hobbies that you just put so much time into, no one's paying you. Of course they're not. That's not even in the picture. It's not in the frame. Yeah, totally. I really get that psychology, like surfers and skaters and all that. I totally understand. I can't do any of it, but I totally get it. I could totally wish I was one of them. I think it's amazing how you get a skateboarder who will just look at a curb or like a structure or a marble bit outside Euston Station and they'll look at it completely differently to the rest of us. Yeah, yeah, totally. I really, I really admire all that, actually. I love that sort of discipline. What did that discipline become for you then after that? relationship did you did did that sort of put the gears in motion to think okay you know you know that you're enjoying stuff you know that you like enjoy owning a creative body of work or whatever it you know however you frame it if you're going to do it good you're going to send it you're going to really put yourself into it did did that happen quickly slowly well you know what i did after a slump is i went and I, i ran a marathon just to do some sort of unnecessary level of effort that didn't mean it doesn't mean anything it's pretty stupid with sort of slightly annoying people to be honest (laughs) and i just did it as a measure of unnecessary effort to sort of tie in you know uh, to slow down the process of me what i was going to do next so i would have an a to b thinking process and i sort of learned that from her a little bit and doing the marathon and then I, I could just go, right, you, you know, I really enjoy achieving things and I can negotiate the struggle at the beginning because all it is when you do embark on something new is a struggle at the beginning because you, you're doubtful. And you just, it's like, 
if you were in a prison cell for long enough, you'd build Paris with your toenails. You could do it, you know, and that's, everything's possible. And I quite like that. You go, and I, now I haven't got that fear at the beginning of anything. I think that's a massive antidote or pushback to, you know, the sort of overwhelmingly capitalist place we live in world that we live in you know where we're always advertised things we're always said we're always told you need this you need that you're always looking for something else my sister's a bit like that she's a bit like FOMO constant FOMO do you know what I mean yeah and I think that's a real thing we're scrolling we're not this we're not that and obviously that's like a very sort of surface level thing but I think it actually runs really deep that idea I think creating something is the most powerful thing anyone can do even having an idea and putting it into action i think that is the most powerful thing you can do because you're not following someone else and that someone else is inevitably going to be someone that you're benefiting you know you're in the fields yeah you've got to get a taste of completing something and once you've got one taste of it then it's there you just got to get a taste it's a taste it's a thing it's a bit of bloodlust or a friend thing you go ah got it right i know what it feels like and the little temporary brief admiration syndrome thing whatever you know and it will die off and then you'll hate yourself and will think you've got fat ankles or whatever you just got to um you get a bit of that and you got to push through i mean it sounds quite self-help but it's you know i don't mean to guruize it or anything but it is all graph but you've got to enjoy that bit i think totally and i think even that kind of thing like i feel like now like I'm I'm 32, so you know I haven't spent that much time as an adult. But I feel like even having an opinion now, you kind of have to preface it with it like I'm not trying to give everyone advice, but you know that's I think that's a product of this year. You know, not to get yeah, yeah, probably. I'm doing it myself. There, have you had some time away from making music? You know, over the years since that first record, since Len Parrott's Memorial Lift. I mean, 2002 that came out. Have you been fairly consistent with your writing and if not writing then just ideas you know concepts lyrics i think i i stalled and that's i stalled for a while in the middle of it all i went pro produced a couple of records which were to me pretty painful and i ended up in paris and i took a really good engineer with me to so yeah. i did the metros and then i did this guy called alistair and that was even more failure and i ended up like sort of get re reverting back to sort of quite a primitive character. And I got so under stress and the French A&R guy was moaning, moaning. So I whacked him around the head with a cross on. And it was such a symbol of like, like you can't hit a French person with one of their well-engineered food products. <laughs> and that was sort of the end of that. And I think I got fired twice within about two weeks. And then that was where a moment where I started to really stutter. Go, shit, what am I, what am I, what am I? And then I've slowly rebuilt you know regain the tempo back into building music back up enough for it, it to be what i do and then i can branch off like i wrote a book mm. in the pandemic and you know that was cat that was sort of i was exploiting my rehearsed dinner party stories about my wild childhood and blah 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 but it gave me insight that that can be completed and now there's potential interest from a TV company to make that and then you and then I've signed another book there and then it kind of branches off and then you can offset music into other worlds and then that's you know being in a more of a graceful age that starts to be more interesting because I'm like oh, I love music I don't want it to be brutalized totally it, you know what I mean and I'm not putting opium in my eyes or anything so I'm pretty straight you know what I mean so maybe like I don't want to be on tour for the rest of my life 
but I like going to Prague or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that stuff to me is like that's the business side of it, and it's kind of a gr- grotesque word, really, isn't it? But or phrase business side. But you have have you learned to enjoy? I mean, it says to me what you just said that, that you're sort of learning to enjoy that entrepreneurial shit, you know, kind of like, you know, if I'm going to do something, then I might as well structure it so that I can do it well. I think that I sounded more structured than I, than I really am. I'm pretty, I've got pretty good managers who are quite structural and um, it's sort of entrepreneurial, but I mean, well, it's quite a good thing not being, I mean, being wealthy would be a curse if you didn't generate it yourself because it would, it, it has to dismantle your, your sort of effort eventually, you know, because it's too hard to do things. So I've always had to work to do it and stay afloat and do the things that I like. I think that's quite good when you get art motivated by necessity. Yeah. Then it gets better. Yeah. The other way around, it just, you know, there's a terrible moment with art when it's just indulgence and then it's shit, really. Is London always going to be your home? Has that always been your home? I mean, I think of artists in in London. That's a fight, isn't it, right? Because, yeah, being an artist in London, in New York, that's a fight. Yeah, it is a fight. I mean, but you're used to it. You're born into it. So you don't question it once you're used to it. You're desensitized to the pressures of being somewhere complicated or expensive. And it's not a bad thing. You know, even where I live is expensive and I have to, fucking work out and art fringe music doesn't necessarily give you money you have to go and find it mm-hmm. you know what i mean you have to work quite hard massively do you feel any sort of uh strong feelings about the government and basically policy for for art support for art i've got a sort of numb to sort of disney left-wing politics and i go oh everyone be nice and then i'll sort of zoom. Mm-hmm. Switch off and go into the intricacies of it. What you mean, sort of the subsidization of art? You mean? Yeah, it's just the kind of way. Look, if you there's just there's not many places in the country that actually really encourages it. You know, unless you're lucky and you live next to a college that gives a that does free music classes, and one of those teachers is a promoter, and there's a partnership with a venue. You see where those things, you look at Australia, yeah. they give these yeah. grants, these bands, Canada, yeah. they give these grants to these yeah. artists. France. I mean, France kind of almost goes a bit kind of over the top with it when they all get thousands of pounds a month and they can put their feet up. And I wonder, I mean, this is a dangerous thing to say whether it sort of wrestles ambition a bit, you know, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, what can you, you can't, question no one gives a shit in this country but i don't know if anyone gives i don't know any political party in this country gives a real shit about that whether that would radically change anyway so you've got to make your make it work i mean obviously this crew there isn't a moment that they're going to give a fuck Mm. but i don't know if there's a grand future anywhere in the kind of way we politically think you know i don't think we think like that politically no it's there there's a total kind of disdain for the future almost yeah i just don't think there's much separation politically in anywhere so yeah we're quite in the center somewhere yeah weird shit i thought i was better than you is sounding excellent from one aylesbury to 
Well, I'm an Aylesbury boy. From one Aylesbury boy to... You didn't spend any time in Aylesbury, did you? I did, actually. I lived in this place called Mount Pleasant. That's where I grew up. I tell you, you actually from... It was a pretty rough street we were from. It was like an Asian community. Amjao and Amjid still lived there. I went and saw them recently when I wrote the book. So, yeah. Aylesbury is a pretty rough place, isn't it? It was rough. So that sort of stays with you. But I loved growing up there. I could even speak bits of Urdu when I was young. So what ages were you there? What kind of period of your life were you there? So like seven. I was more or less. I was born around the corner in the countryside in a slightly kind of hippie commune. And then mum and dad split up and we lived in Aylesbury. What commune was that? It wasn't a real commune. It was more like an art house full of, you know, Royal College of Artists types. Not near Whitchurch, was it? It was called Wingrave. We were in a place called Wingrave in Buckinghamshire. Tiny. It's got one church and one shop and it's still the same. I know Wingrave. Do you know Wingrave? Yeah. Yeah. I think my brother used to take guitar lessons there. We might have played. Yeah. Might. Is it a giant house and it's got a driveway and nearby it's got a strawberry picking farm? Well, do you know what? The house was the vicarage we lived in. It would have been okay. tumbled down. It would have been, I think it was two quid a week. They got it. My aunt found it for my mum and dad. And they moved in because they were so poor. They had nothing. So then, and but then dad moved in, the, the band moved in subsequently. And all these sort of weird, semi kind of rubbish looking hippie blokes. And, and I was actually born in the house, mythologically, while they were playing Johnny B. Good downstairs, which was one of their first cover tunes. Wow. I was born to Johnny B. Good. I went back to the house, the house now. I think you can Airbnb the room that I was born in. But I went and knocked there one day on a Sunday and some posh woman answered the door and she was having a Sunday roast. And behind her was a sort of meek-looking gothic kid with lipstick on, boy with lipstick on. And he was staring at me and she went, you can't come in today, you can't look at the house, and then closed the door. And then the kid, like, then Instagrammed me that night and went, I want to escape. I saw you. I love your music and all this. Can you get me out of here? And I was thinking, Jesus, how weird is that? What did you do? I didn't drive around there and get him out of there, but I thought it was a brilliant, it could have been a good story, a good documentary, that. Definitely. Oh my God. That's <laughs> nuts, isn't it? Yeah. Baxter, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate the time. I know these are long form kind of deals. So thank you for the time. No, I like it. It's enjoyable, actually. Wicked. I, I like to end these with... You know, any I've done loads of jobs playing in bands. Obviously, that's sort of the sort of libido of this thing, and and I was always pretty shy to every job I ever did, partly because I didn't care. I'm also clumsy. I'd also sort of I'd just sort of lie to get the job. I'd say that I knew how to work this massive handsaw to cut this person's pavement, and I didn't, and I fucked it up. I cut it the wrong way and broke it, and all that. <laughs> and I I like hearing, especially now in this sort of LinkedIn generation, I th- I quite like hearing the antidote, the other sort of the opposites of I'm the best at everything kind of people. Cause I, it's so boring. I'm so, so sick of it. Yeah. And I like hearing people's sort of work gaff stories. And you told an amazing one from the off. Yeah. Have you got one about a phone shop or was that the, the watch shop? That was that job. Yeah. I think that was that one. I mean, I had another job. Like my mate got me a job. His, his old man owned a thing called conlitting, which is where you like, it's, it's a bit like asbestos, but it was the version of asbestos in the late 80s, which probably didn't kill you in, you know, killed you over 10 years, not five. And they're like these panels that you put along the center of a building structure. And without any license or anything, where we got you this job, 
and I had to wear harnesses and go over the side of in the internal structure of a building. And we we built they were building this building, Cannon Street building. It was the biggest building being built in Europe, and I was sent over the edge. <laughs> and this thing with this big wielding gun going like that, and I was like seventeen, and you'd have to do ghosters all night with these like cement cauliflowered villainous people they were villainous and i did it with another mate and he got terrorized like i mean literally so bullied and because i was ian's boy i got utterly caught i was totally caught not and it was one of the times where i thought fuck i'm so grateful that i'm the enduring son because i was just left alone <laughs> and when they want their instinct was just to pick on these knobby little middle class kids yeah yeah, but, and that's but I had to, and that, but one big burly guy would hold the end of the harness, and I'd go right, and then go, like fire these like pen pillar, but I don't know what they like nails into the side of. Anyway, I built Cannon Bridge or Street or something like that. I don't know what it was. That's people pay for that now to walk over Wembley or the O2 and all that stuff. It sounds a lot safer than yeah. that, but. <laughs> I built that. That's funny. Do you have those kind of moments when you go around town? Do you feel like you've got a kind of a story for every part of London? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of jobs. And now I'm starting to think about a lot of jobs and a lot of faux pas. And I was pretty fucking useless. I was a waiter for a while. That was a nightmare. In Lord Linley's restaurant, I was a waiter. <laughs> and I, yeah, I was some crazy chap in there. And then I, and I worked in a, in a lamp shop, famous lamp shop, I think, on the King's Road. And I sneezed, fell off a ladder and... Did about 25 grand's worth of lamps. Oh, fuck. I did a lot of things like that. And I was a bit of a, you know, I was always taking things without when I wasn't meant to. I was a bit of a shit, to be honest. I'm a bit regretful. Right. It's a bit considering, you know. But, yeah. Nice one. Um, I, I can't think of any other. I mean, there's so many, probably. Yeah. And it's the little things as well, right? I mean, so I used to work at the South London Press up at Streatham Hill. And yeah. just... Yeah, lots of typos in there. Lots of lots of wrong information I'm writing in the, the arts pages then. Because I didn't really care. Not really. I wouldn't get paid anything, so why would I? You know, there's this kind of selfish, I suppose, really. I know a good one, what I did. So then I eventually I worked in the film industry for a while and became like, in, when the, in the sort of boom period of pop videos in the 90s, so the 90s or maybe the late 80s and early 90s, I became... I was a second AD, then I was a first AD. I don't know how I blagged myself to become the controller of the film set because I was a bit leery and I was quite good at talking, but I wasn't qualified. I wasn't really quite, I didn't know anything about how any of the, and what the cameras did and stuff. And I got into a very big video shoot with a band called Shampoo. Have you ever heard no. of Shampoo? They were like sort of amphetamine from like Bromley or something, two girls, they were like pop punk, early 90s. You can look up one of their songs. I can't remember what it's called. It was a big hit, one of their songs. But by the time I'd got to, this was their second big song and the shoot was massive. And I arrived there and they had this thing called motion control, which is when you had to operate a big complicated system, with cameras on a ceiling thing. And I didn't have a clue what it was. And there was 60 to 100 people there and you can kind of blag it by saying a lot of stuff that sounds loud and go lunch in a minute and all that sort of shit. <laughs> and it was a sort of bravado blag and it had worked for, for a year and I got pretty well paid, but I could see some heavy looking kind of dudes all around the, on the, 
orbiting around the set like sparks and grips and they're all pretty blokey and so my sort of mockney bravados were sort of wearing off a little bit and they were sensing it i was a bit fraudulent <laughs> i was going i went an octave two cockney you know what i mean yeah. and they were like they sort of smelled a rat when they were like, who caught me? And um, and I fucked up, and I and there was there were, we were too late doing something, and the producer who was controlling it all told me to tell them that they um, they couldn't have a lunch break, and then they complained to me, all these blokes, and then I complained to the producer. And then he had a go at them. And anyway, man, every fucking th- every place I walked, I, everyone on the set started whispering, Bertie Smalls, Bertie fucking Smalls. And Bertie Smalls was the first ever Supergrass convicted in the 80s. Right. And they turned on, anyway, the point was, is the whole crew spearheaded by these like dead eyed blokes. It was just like another, it was another thing. <laughs> And it broke me, it broke me, I cried in a room. And then the band had taken so much speed, they were having a paranoid fit and wouldn't come out. It was more of a disaster than I could ever imagine. And it broke me and I never, never went into another film set ever again, ever. I walked away broken because I'd extended my fraudulent credentials too far. I'd gone too far with the blag and it backfired. Horrific. (laughs) yeah well that was quite good when people turn on you it's it's horrible me and my girlfriend used to do some club nights down here in Newcross, and it's sort of yeah. running it was just cash it's just it's just you know it's not it wasn't like the club night that our friends would come to put it that way and yeah. um we are you know just the classic person playing you know put on share put on share put on share put on share and finally right. we acquiesced we like we were just like, fine, fuck off, fine, fuck off, go away and we put it on and the place was having a fun because it's just it's sort of like nowhere else to go around here so packed place share believe whatever the guy who runs the bar who it's just was just always a bit of a knob comes comes around and just does this and we're like <laughs> what yeah. it's like did something awful happen when he heard this song as it's like is this like triggering him i don't know yeah. who knows so we so i just did like a really bad fade and something else the whole play I'm talking a hundred people turned around yeah. and booed Eva and I. Like <laughs> booed us. <laughs> and I don't think we've quite recovered from that. I mean, you know <laughs> when people turn on you, it's like the it's like the ocean turning on you. It's like a rip wave, but we had to support Noel Gallagher for about four three months and he was lovely but i mean boy oh boy his crowd weren't ready for a, for a bloke talking about his own emotions in an ill-fitting 80s suit Eleven thousand bacon-faced britons shouting i mean those those stadiums or whatever are designed so the projectiles will never reach you but you see it a kind of, of tsunami of stuff coming towards you and if you read twitter after being in the sheffield arena or whatever you're like but you grow from that. It's growth. Criticism growth. Big time. It's quite funny. At those gigs, how did you, you're singing, you're enjoying your, we're well, trying to enjoy your gig and you see a bacon face open up their mouth. What's the feeling? I, I just go more Priscilla Queen of the Desert. I just, like, <laughs> what? I just go more, you know what yeah. I mean? I just, just go into a thing. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Baxter. That's great. I loved it. So there was Baxter Jury here on 101 Part-Time Jobs. His new record, I Thought I Was Better Than You, comes out on 2nd of June. There are loads of great records 
to go back to and listen to of his. And his book, of course. Yeah, nothing better than a proper character to get stuck into, really. Cheers for listening. Thanks to Jay Cavalier for producing these jingles and these tunes. Thanks to Liam Clayton for editing. See you later tomorrow for a new mini-sode of the playlist where I talk about some new tunes that I've been digging. And then another full episode later this week. I've got to figure out who that's going to be. If you want to find out, feel free to subscribe. And you can also leave a review. All that stuff helps get to the cream. All right. Cheers again for listening. It's Cox Barra. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. The headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing. But you know better, and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-Month Emergency Food Kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com